If you like the Live Wild podcast and enjoy hunting-related apparel, I've got you covered. I just launched some great t-shirts, hats, and sweatshirts under my own Live Wild brand. You can find them now on my website, remywarren.com. I just want to say thanks again, everyone, for all the support, and I really hope you enjoy these designs as much as I do. Who knows? Maybe you'll head over to my website and find your next lucky hat. I'm Remy Warren, and I've lived my life in the wild. As a professional guide and hunter, I've spent thousands of days perfecting my craft. I want to give that knowledge to you. In this podcast, we relive some of my past adventures as I give you practical hunting tips to make you more successful. Whether you're just getting started or a lifelong hunter, this podcast will bring you along on the hunt and teach you how to live wild. This podcast is brought to you by Mountain Tough and Yeti. A lot of the tactics I talk about here require you to be in top physical shape. So I partnered with Mountain Tough to help get you ready for the mountain. With their science-based hunter-specific training app, you'll get in shape and mentally tough, able to tackle any hunt. Because we really believe this will help you be more successful, as a listener to this podcast, we're giving you six free weeks to get you started. Just use code LIVEWILD. It's no secret Yeti has some of the best and most durable gear out there. But when it came to hydration, they previously didn't have a great backcountry solution. Well, that all changed with their new Yonder water bottle. My Yonder covered the backcountry all across the West last season while chasing mule deer, elk, caribou, and more. It's about 50% lighter than their insulated Rambler, but still has that Yeti toughness. The best part is they've now got them in four different sizes, so you can pack the bottle perfectly fit for your hunt. To top it off, there's also great options for customization. You can check them out now at yeti.com. Well, everyone, welcome back to the Live Wild Live podcast. This is the podcast where people get a call in and ask their hunting questions. This one, I'm actually in between hunts, just got back from an Alaska sheep hunt. I'll tell the full story on a future podcast. It was a pretty wet and wild hunt. Uh, We definitely gave it our all and and hunted extremely hard. And I'll, I'll cover that entire story on a future podcast, but finally feeling a little bit better. Got back from that trip and was just sicker than a dog too. So beat down by the mountain and then beat down by whatever I caught when I got home. But uh, feeling pretty good now and excited to get out and, and chase some elk. And many of you are probably already in your middle of the elk season or you, you've been out and, and at least chased some bulls around. So I'm sure I, I love these mid-season Q&As because we get some of that live like this is what happened yesterday. What should I do? Those are always some of the best questions, but whatever hunting questions you got, I'm excited to talk hunting. If this is your first time calling in, feel free to just give me your name, where you're from, and we'll we'll dive into the questions. This week, I'm really excited too, because one lucky caller is going to go home with a Montana knife, stone goat knife. It's a, It's got a Live Wild logo engraved on it, essentially limited edition. Can't really get those anywhere. So uh, excited about that. It's a great prize. Awesome knife, super lightweight, great skinning knife, super easy to sharpen, keeps a great edge. One of my favorite knives that they make. So excited about that as well. Let's dive in and jump into our first caller here. Hey, welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking to? This is Devin from North Dakota. Hey, Devin. How's it going, man? Not too bad. I just had a quick question when it comes to e-scouting, I guess. I was able to get out into Montana. I've got general big game combo for out there. I was able to get out and get a little bit of boots on the ground time, but one of the things I was struggling with when I was doing my preliminary e-scouting was finding access roads. Is there any way of being able to tell what is private and what is public roads that can be traveled, I guess. Yeah, that's a great question. And sometimes yes, sometimes no. So one of the ways that you can do that is, you know, like it depends on what public land is around. So sometimes like a a forest service road will be colored, right? As like a a numbered or Mm -hmm. legal forest service road. And generally when that butts into private, that is a continuation of the road. So like when you're on your online maps, it's going to show a forest service road that butts into private. Oftentimes that road continues as a public thoroughfare access point. 
That is kind of one of the struggles. And I know a lot of the different mapping softwares out there are, are continually finding solutions for that. You know, so any kind of new updates, sometimes there's updates that include that. When it's on BLM, it's a little bit different because on a lot of the maps, you know, you'll see just the BLM roads aren't marked as well. You know, any public road, obviously a public road that butts up to forest service or public land, that's an easy access point. But generally, you know, you, you would just kind of have to know whether that road, you know, continued on or through. You can always contact like land management agencies, but I've even had trouble doing that. You know, you're like, hey, is this a, a legal access? Where are the legal accesses? One thing that I do do as well is when you're on, you know, I mean, you, you think about like mapping software and you've got all the newfangled, you've got satellite imagery, hybrid imagery, all this other stuff. One of the features that I use still a lot is just pulling up that USGS map, the quadrangle map and looking at that mm -hmm. because a lot of those older maps actually have better idea of where the access is. And so I'll use those maps a lot. Another thing you can look at too is there if there's an easement on a road, I know that this is happens a place that I was at very recently. And what you'll want to do is like zoom in really close and you'll see that like within the boundaries of that road, there's actually it'll be like a like a public land easement. And if you're zoomed out too much, you can't see that. But if you zoom in enough, you see that like, hey, the property doesn't go to the road. It actually is like, there's an easement here. Um, I've seen that on a lot of BLM type land yeah. where you go, oh, okay, like this access. is, yeah, like this is the access. And you don't really see that unless you're zoomed in tight enough to the road where you can kind of like see the edges of the road. That's another, another way that I'll do it. Uh, but for the most part, you know, it, it does take a little bit of trial and error. You know, most people tend to just find like, the major access points and then, you know, go off of there. And every once in a while you find a, a little secret road that you go, Ooh, there's actually an easement here. Majority of small roads don't have them. You know, I mean, that's just part of it. Like, especially in Eastern Montana and stuff like that. It's like a lot of those roads, there aren't easements on those roads. So another one is too, if there, if there's multiple properties connecting, there probably is some kind of easement. So if it's like a thoroughfare that accesses multiple ranches, if it's one that dead ends in a, in a particular piece of private property, and then it, public beyond that, very rarely will that actually have access through that. So, um, you know, like looking at the way that other people access and use that road might give you an idea of what kind of legal accesses are on that road as well. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. When I went out there earlier this year, I mainly just uh, tried to focus on having a handful of different spots in case I uh, found one that was not a public drive but was just kind of wondering for the future as well so thanks yeah. for taking my call yeah and it, it's good that's the one of the nice things is having those multiple i mean i've i've done that too i actually did that on a hunt a couple years ago and it was a place that i'd accessed for a very long time in arizona and they just decided to cut off access and i'm driving down the road and there's a fat locked gate across mm -hmm. it and i'm going it's like midnight one in the morning by the time i got there i was going what the heck i use this access for years and it was, they let people go through there and it was actually, they just, a new owner came in and said, no more access. So I had to drive two hours to service to figure out what was going on. It was like, yep, yeah, nope, they locked it off. <laughs> okay. You know, so, <laughs> I mean, that kind of thing happens all the time. So and, I didn't change and, your plan. No. And yeah, I was like, all right, well, I'm just, just, I ended up walking like 20 miles to get around it and had a good hunt, but it, it ate up a lot of time and a lot of energy to get back into a place that I could essentially drive to and start glassing, which, hey, I think it actually made the hunting better. But, you know, those are things that, that also change all the time. A lot of places that people think there's access, actually there aren't. You know, there actually are a lot of places where, you know, maybe not necessarily Montana, but other states where people do allow access and it's like, hey, it's open. It's an open gate policy. Sometimes you'll see signs that say, please close the gate as you go through, you know, stuff like that uh, that indicates where, where you can go through. And then those those access points can change. And and then obviously another thing to think about too is is looking for a lot of that block management type stuff and those kind of access points because there is a lot of stuff that might be blocked off, but you can access it through walk-in BMAs and other things like that. Perfect. Right awesome. On. Thank you for the information. Yeah. Well, best of luck to you and happy hunting. Thanks. You too. Bye. Bye. All right. We're going to go to our next caller here. Hey, welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking with? Hey, Remy, Josh from Coeur Idaho. Hey, Josh, how's it going? Good, brother. How are you? Yeah, good. Really good. 
Hey, I got a quick question for you. So I've been hunting for about 23 years now and I've gotten lucky in the past. However, I'm trying to make it to where I can see more animals. And I don't know if you've ever hunted the northern panhandle of Idaho, but it's so darn thick and wet. How would you go about trying to find terrain that you would normally find, you know, whitetail, mule deer or elk in? Yeah, I mean, I have been in that country and it is very, very thick. You know, I I also have found places like I've primarily bear hunted there, but I think if you're looking for places where you can see more, there's a few options, right? The first one being obviously, well, a couple options. I focus on any kind of clear cuts, any kind of burns, and any kind of, I guess, you know, it depends where you are, but like those, there are still faces that are burnt off or kind of like a more alpine type area in certain particular units. Maybe not particularly there, but other guys listening, other places where you go, hey, there's, I've got this big mountain. Well, it's all timber. There are places where you can get above the timber a little bit. You know, another thing too is like, there's going to be, places as well where, you know, nature has just kind of created some kind of opening as well. And in places where it's really heavily timbered, if you can find those, those are really good hot spots because it's just a, it's kind of a honey hole of everything's timbered and, and here's an opening, whether it's from avalanches, blowdowns, fires, whatever it be, those can be really good. A lot of the man-made openings though should not be discounted. A lot of the stuff that I've hunted in like thicker country, we primarily target clear cuts and in, in logging. Now, a lot of that stuff's not as prevalent as it used to be, right? Like, I don't know what it's like up there. It's been a while since I've been up there, but a lot of the places that I used to hunt in Montana that were super thick, we relied on like good logging. Now it's so selective cut and not, you just don't get that much anymore. And all those good spots are starting to fill in and get really brushy and, and very hard to hunt. And, and in some of that country, you know, sometimes I kind of change my tactic and just say, we can't find a place to glass or whatever. So we're just utilizing tactics for that thicker country. So it might be, you know, when it comes to elk, a lot of calling and primarily bow hunting and and hunting during the rut is the most successful. When it comes to deer though, you know, really understanding their pattern, especially when it's like whitetail, one of the places that I hunt whitetail a lot, big mountain like that, very thick, very covered, but you start to learn their habits and their trails and other things. And then you can kind of, you know, start to pick them out based off of that. And I'll actually do a lot of calling in that whitetail mountain type country. And I've had a lot of success doing that. Some of the best bucks I've ever killed or guided guys to have been calling in November, which the oftentimes places that are heavily timbered have seasons in the, in the rut, you know, for deer and for elk. Right. Um, So that, you know, like kind of just picking and choosing your hunt based off of that. I hope that kind of answers your question. Yeah, it definitely does actually. Yeah, and, and honestly, well, too, very like, cool. I appreciate it. you know, looking for anything that, you know, if there's a, a recent fire or things like that, I mean, there's nothing better than thick country that recently burned. <laughs> I mean, that's like some of the best hunting right. there is. And there's always places that have recently burned. So, you know, gravitating toward those spots helps a lot as well. Gotcha. Well, very cool. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of fresh burn area out this way. So, yeah, perfect. Well, man, I appreciate your help. Yeah. Thanks so much for the question. Best of luck. Definitely look forward to hearing more of your episodes and how your hunt goes this year. Yeah, thanks, man. Catch you later. All right. Bye. All right. We're going to go to our next caller here. Hey, welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, pretty good. How's it going, man? Doing good. Getting off work and calling you, asking a question. Perfect. So basically, mine has to do with the air pocket in the elk. I shot a six by six uh, last weekend, Sunday. Um, perfect, well, I guess not perfect. Everything looked great. Arrow hits, immediate big blood pool on the side. You know, 30 yard shot, broadside. It was a little far forward, obviously, but it had to hit right behind that shoulder. And I'm just I mean, I blood trailed that thing for three miles. He ran from the top of the ridge all the way down to the bottom main road. 3,000 foot, 3,500 so, whatever elevation drop. We found blood, good blood, and then it started to dry up a little bit. And then the arrow fell out. And then he must have hit a a stick or something to rip the rest of it open because there's this giant blood patch. 
and then it just kept drying up a little bit. The bull never bedded down. He just ran straight out of town, left his cows. It was in a big burn area, so if once we couldn't find blood, we could still follow his tracks. And it got to the point to where it got down towards the bottom where it's all the avalanche stuff, you know, where we can't walk through down. And yeah, and then finally got down to the road and, you know, and just couldn't find him at all. Eight hours looking for that bull. And I mean, he's got to be out, out in another zip code or something. Um, have you ever had any experience with that air pocket at all or? Um, yeah. I mean, do you know, like, like that? do you know what kind of penetration you got? I got at least a foot in the arrow. So that's another thing too. I had iron wheel broadheads on and it broke the broadhead, which is kind of crazy. So I'm not sure if I hit like a rib on the other side or something, but like half of that broadhead tip was broken off still in him when i got the, when i found the arrow yeah you know my my guess is well that's yeah i mean it, there's a couple things if you know for sure you got like good penetration my guess is he was quartered away and you hit far forward right and what happened was he's probably quartered more than you thought his his opposite leg was probably forward and it probably slammed into that bone on that opposite side and then when he moved it probably you know came back and broke so it kind of like hit far forward you know in that you probably are going to get a lot of really bright red was it like really bright red blood um it was pretty dark was it pretty and dark and then we found some blood with yeah and then we found some blood with a couple of bubbles in it but not much so i don't think i hit a lung yeah he, there, he never bedded down and one of the bad things was is I mean, we gave him, we would come to a spot and then sit for another hour or so, and then just keep coming down and sit for another hour or so. So it was an eight hour track, just taking our time, but our wind was just going straight at him. It had to have been towards that, towards the end, especially. And then we ended up finding his cows up on the opposite um, little knoll across from, a, across from the creek, and they were all hanging out there, and that bull was nowhere to be found. We sat there for an hour waiting for him to come out because my buddy actually has the rifle tag up here to hunt during the archery season so we were looking for you know one of them big ones but and just couldn't i mean just could never find him dang yeah and i mean and I, it it, it definitely sorry go oh ahead. go ahead oh it, it definitely could have been I, we got it on video the video is not the best quality because it was on my right shoulder and you could you could see him just before he takes off and it's right there behind the shoulder like you're saying slightly quartered away but a giant pocket of blood already pooled around his hide and yeah it's it just something crazy i mean there's three of us there this would have been my first uh bow kill and those other two guys i mean they've killed bulls and you know nothing new to them and everyone's like no that shot looked great but obviously you know couldn't, we couldn't recover him and went back the next day looking for crows and nothing yeah, that's tough. I mean, you know, you can always keep going back into those same areas. Sometimes a bull will get hit and just, you know, essentially it's like in that more open country. He's like, I'm looking for cover and he's going to go to those first kind of pockets of cover. It sounds like you guys followed him for a long time. The fact that like, it, you know, if I, if I ever saw him going or trailing uphill, it would be more concerning. If he was always trending downhill, never going up, that's a little more promising. But I have seen, you know, like, the thing about elk is if they jump a little bit in your eye or even on a video, unless you really slow it down, it looks great, you know, but they, the way that they can shift their body so fast, it goes from slightly quartered away to severely quartered away, you know, and too far forward and their lung elk lungs are actually pretty high. So, you know, it could be a, a factor of that. And then you kind of essentially hit in front of what would be the vitals or don't nick anything extremely important. You know, you can see a lot of blood too on on certain muscle hits that happens fast. But you know, based off what you're saying, it, it sometimes it's just like one of those things. You you read these articles, right, of like a guy that fell off a ladder and he had a screwdriver or a drill in his hand, and the drill like went between his eyes and missed his brain, and he survived. Or a guy that gets shot and it's like a millimeter left or right, and he would have died, but he survived. Like every once in a while, that happens with elk too, right? Where everything was pretty close to perfect and, you know, it just didn't work out because of the angle that they were at or, or, or something like that. 
It's, it's hard to say. Um, or you could have hit more bone on the entry and, and broke the broadhead ahead of time, which I've seen happen as well, where you don't get as much cutting, you know, depending on how bad that broadhead was broken. So you get a little bit penetration, it breaks the bone, but it doesn't actually do any cutting. And that's unfortunate as well. Yeah, it, I mean, it was an awesome hunt. Got a, called him up at least from a thousand yards. It oh, wow. Like he was way in the bottom. And oh, oh yeah. And it was, you know, nice suit. I mean, it's open enough to where you can see him. And then he finally could see his ant, I could finally see his antlers at 200 yards. And he was coming in all perfect from 200 yards. Completely had no idea I was there and waited till his head got right behind the pine tree, drew back all silent. He had no idea what was going on until he got hit. So like even the moving part, I, I just, I mean, I, it all happened so fast, but in yeah. my mind, I mean, Cal called, he stopped and whack and Damn. you hear it all in the video. And then you see him, he doesn't take off running. He just kind of jolts off, stops, and then kind of jaunders off a minute. And then it looks like, you know, he started to get a little woozy and then he just started walking downhill and was gone. Wow. Yeah, that's a bummer, man. I feel for you. That's, <laughs> that's no fun. But uh, best of luck. And hopefully, I mean, you never know what might happen, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It was an awesome experience for sure. Wish we could have got the whole thing on video. But, oh, man, that was a bummer day. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Come home with the kids and bring them the six by six bull and all that stuff. Already sent out the end reach to the buddies, bull down. People oh. were coming up, and then it just got worse and worse. Farther and farther down we got, blood was drying, and yeah. And then you know he was he had to have been just gone out of town. Yeah, that's a tough one, man. Well, best of luck to you next time. All right, we're gonna go to our next caller here. Hey, welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking to? Hey, this is Jerry from Oregon. Hey, Jerry, how's it going? Good. So my question is about late season elk hunting. I have a rifle tag for the Oregon coast and our season's like mid to late November. And I've been hunting for elk hunting for a few years and still haven't been able to even really find anything to shoot at. I, every year I see cows, but having trouble locating a bull. Yeah. So where might they be? <laughs> that's that's a good question. You know, uh, late November in that like thicker country is probably the hardest time to find elk or bulls, and there's kind of a reason for that. That's why they that's why they have the rifle seasons that are like general over the counter tags then because it's this it's, success is tough. You know, a lot of times by then the bulls have broken off on their own, and so you know in that type of country they probably aren't doing a major migration, I would assume. Is that correct? Like that area, they probably aren't really moving out of there. Um, no. Yeah. So no, they're pretty much yeah. residential. Yeah. And, and they're in pockets, you know, what they, you know, sometimes that's one of those things where you're like, you go down low and there's like private and you see bulls everywhere. And then you go up on the mountain and you see nothing. <laughs> and I think that that's part yeah. of it too, right? Like, they're like, oh yeah, driving up to hunt, there's bulls in every field that we drove past. And then you get up there and they're hard to find. But, you know, I think one of the things that I think about later in the season is is kind of bulls in that that feed pattern. And so where's those little pockets where they actually aren't moving much? They're going to be in like little tiny pockets where they're getting that feed, where they're pretty covered up and they're hitting some bedding. I've seen bulls walk out of like, like I've watched like a, let's say a kind of talking about that, you know, more timbered area earlier, but like a, a little area that kind of was like, maybe like think of like a wet gut. that has got a little bit of old clear cut in it and we're watching it all day and a bull walks out of a patch of like thick whatever for five right. seconds in the morning and then just disappears again. It's like, oh, that's where the big bull is. And he's just probably been laying in that patch for three days, four days, right? You just... Hey, we've watched that same thing, you know. So just kind of understanding, like, hey, here you're you're finding elk, you're finding cows. I would say probably look a little higher on the mountain in elevation, or in like a a, a pocket of like where there's a little bit of all that stuff, but it, you know it's a little bit harder to get into or, or what have you. It can be hard to point, pinpoint exactly. And the other thing that I do a lot too is cover a lot of country. So there's kind of two philosophies. Like when I figure out what the bulls like, like when you figure out, oh, here's an area that the elk are hanging or here's an area where bulls are hanging, I'll continue to hunt that spot, right? 
And year after year, you're going to find that those elk go kind of to the same places. Uh, I've killed bulls that I've seen the year before in the same pockets in similar kind of country. So, you know, understanding okay. like once you start to figure it out, then the guy, because you're going to see like there's guys there that kill their elk every year and they're probably killing them pretty close to where they killed them last year, right? Or other bulls that they've seen. Once you start to find bulls, now you know where bulls are at and kind of hone in and pinpoint those locations. Sometimes you just got to be more patient because there's cover and they can disappear real easy. So sometimes it's just like, okay, now, right. now I found the elk. Now I found the bulls. Now it's time to be patient and continue hunting these bulls. But until that point, maybe moving a lot is going to be your best option. And so I kind of do a combination okay. of that and where yeah. you're like, you're covering country. So that's kind of like my other part of the question. Like I've been in spots where I've seen you know, obvious sign and good sign. It looked fresh, but with the season only being, I think it's four days. Yeah. So would you try and sit on that or, and hope they come out or try and maybe go in and find them in some of that thicker area? Yeah. I mean, that that's the hard part. You know, I, I do like still hunting. If it's an area where you could maybe reasonably glass a little bit, right? I would get back and I would glass first thing in the morning and right at dark. That's what I prefer. And then, you know, with limited time, those other, you know, during the day, I would probably still hunt. If I did know like, hey, this one's here and he disappeared into this spot, then you could do that waiting game or kind of, you know, at least you know where he's at. I would definitely spend my right. morning like trying to to observe because they're, you know, they're if they're going to be out, it's going to be like right before daylight or right after dark. And so those are the times that I'm really trying to like look at places where they might be feeding, especially if you're seeing sign in like little feeding pockets and stuff like that, more open areas. If you're like, hey, there's tracks in here. They're either doing it at night or right first thing in the morning, last thing at night. So that's when I'd be looking. And then the rest of the day with very limited time like that, I would, yeah, I would, I'd kind of be bust and brush to be honest. Okay, great. Yep. Well, best well, of luck to you, you man. Much. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you run into a bull and send me a picture. Yep, I definitely will. Perfect. Good luck to you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, let's jump over to our next caller here. Hey, welcome to the Live Wild podcast. Who am I talking to? Hey, Remy, this is uh, Josh from Colorado Springs. Hey, Josh, how's it going? Uh, it's going good. My question is uh, just about spot and stalk uh, archery antelope. Um, I've been uh, looking to get it on a hunt like that, and um not really interested in the whole sit water thing. Um, some people might think I'm crazy for that, but I was just curious on your opinion of um, getting one of those decoys that goes on the front of your bow and kind of just um, if you have any experience and things you su you would suggest um, in that realm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing about it. like, I, I don't personally use one. I think I see value in it sometimes. And I also see like how it can mess you up. Right. So, I'll give you the pros and cons to it. And I don't think that you go wrong either way. One of the pros of it is if you're crawling in, in the open and you, you need an opportunity to draw, well, that might give you that extra few seconds to make that shot, right? The cons of it are, it does catch the wind pretty good. If it's windy, it makes it hard to, I mean, my brother shot stuff with him on and he's like, it's like, it's like shooting with a sail on your bow. You know, if it's windy and antelope country is often windy. There's also the kind of the problem of when you put that up, it's very visible. It's the color of an antelope and that's easy for them to see. And so sometimes it's like, oh, here's something unexpected and I see it right away, right? So it immediately draws attention and it can be also kind of cumbersome to crawl in with. So there are pros and cons. And some, when I've used decoys, like every time I don't have it, I wish I had it. And every time I have it, I'm pissed that I have it because it's like it works sometimes and it work, doesn't work other times you know, the conditions have to be right for it. Like when it works and guys have used them, they're like, does swear by them, right? Because it's like, yeah, it worked great. Me personally, yeah. I don't know. Like I, I kind of move on the fence of it. If I had one and someone's like, here, use this. I'll be like, cool, I'll try it. And if I don't have one, I'm like, cool, I, I don't need it. There are times where I've thought, yeah. oh man, I wish I had one in this particular instance. I don't think it would necessarily hurt you every time. I don't think it will help you every time to be 100% honest. So I think that it is a good tool to have but I think there's also certain scenarios where it's actually kind of a pain, honestly. So everybody that's used them probably thinks the same way, right? But sometimes like depends where you're at. You just have like really good experience. I've had antelope like run into decoys, right? And like that was cool. Uh, but it's not always like that either. And in areas like where yeah. it's pretty 
general over the counter kind of antelope bow hunting. It, it like I feel like they don't work as well as areas where I've been. Like there's places I've been in Wyoming where the tags are less abundant. And yeah, I mean you could probably put up like a game bag over your head and an antelope would run in. So it just depends on the area. My primary strategy though, when it comes to stalking antelope is like be unseen, hunt a little more broken country and do a lot of crawling. And I've had a lot of success that way. So it's doable both ways to be hundred percent honest. Okay. Yeah. That, that helps me out a lot. I appreciate it. Yeah. I, I would never want to like discourage someone from using them because I definitely see the benefit. I know a lot of people that swear by them. I've just had like more bad luck with them, good luck personally. So it's one of those things too. Like I just go back and forth all the time and sometimes I take them and sometimes I don't, sometimes whatever. But I think the one that attaches to your bow is probably the easiest to use because you kind of want some hands-free stuff. Staking them in kind of is a pain. So I could see the benefit to it for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll, I'll have to give it a try. And if I'm successful, I'll have to let you know. And if I'm not, I'll, you know, probably not bring it ever again. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. That sounds good, man. Well, best of luck to you. That's a really fun hunt too. It's a, you, you're going to enjoy it. Yeah, I, I hope so. I'm looking forward to it. So, all right. Thank you, Remy. Have a good one. Yep. You too. All right. Let's go to our next caller here. Hey, welcome to the Wild Podcast. Who am I talking to? Hey, Remy. This is Bill from Southern Oregon. How hey, you doing? Yeah, pretty good. How's it going, Bill? Uh, great, great. Thank you very much for taking my call. And first thing I want to thank you for, you know, all the information and knowledge that you share with all of us. Uh, it's really helped me out in the last uh, two years that I've been listening and watching watching your videos, listening to your podcasts. And uh, this question kind of goes back to last week's podcast about classing for big game. And this is specifically mule deer. Um, this is my first mule deer hunt in uh, my 58 years of youngness. And familiar with blacktail and coos deer, but this is my first mule deer hunt. And I drew a tag in... Uh, southeastern Oregon um, in a mountain, and I'm concentrating on a mountain range that uh, comes up out of Nevada there and into Oregon. Oh, cool. And it's a lot different type of topography for me. Um, there are no trees. The only trees are some small cottonwoods that are down in the very bottom of some basins. Um, and the only thing I've seen, uh, taking your advice from another podcast of going out and covering some ground both uh in my pickup on a quad and then a ton of hiking um which with this mountain range requires a lot of elevation gain in a very short distance like 1500 feet in a mile mile and a half um it's it's 2000 feet from where i can stop on a four-wheeler and get off and get to the top of a ridge and that's where i've been finding sign and even seeing a few bucks i will that this is an extremely low density unit. Um, I have literally only seen five bucks in three scouting trips out there. Um, so it's all safe. There are uh, cliff bands up on top, um, glassing. Um, in the morning, I'm looking on my west faces, kind of got the sun in my face. I'm just not sure. Like I bumped those, a few of those bucks when I got up, clear up at the top of the ridge there um, one morning. Um, so my question kind of is like in the mornings, how high up will you go? Clearly thermals are moving downhill. How high up will you go? If you can't get above them, like there's not a higher peak than where I've been finding them. Will you go all the way up to where they're at? Or will you attempt glassing from below knowing that they're likely going to be hidden in the sage? Um, and then I'm going to move on to midday and then evening, you know, moving around the other side of the, the ridge there to the Eastern side of the ridge and looking at those cliff bands again. And I know where beds are at. I know where I've been finding sign. I'm just struggling with where to glass from at those times. I got a lot of information out of your last podcast as far as magnification and, and, uh, what did you call it there, where uh, we're putting the size of the distance you're looking to what mag- magnification you're using there. And yeah. Body, great information there. But yeah, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, you know, I mean, honestly, like, I mean, I'm very familiar with a lot of those areas, kind of where you're talking. And, and a lot of the stuff that I hunt mm-hmm. is very similar. It probably runs through 
same mountain range half the time. So, yeah, you know, I, yeah. I think one of the things that you're going to find is, yeah, the, the bucks are going to be kind of up on one side of those knobs or the other at pretty much the highest points first thing in the morning feeding. Like I said, you know, they're going to be, they can hide in pretty much anything. You, they don't need timber to, to bed down and they don't even need the cliff bands half the time. The bucks you bumped are probably bedded on a ridge in some sage pockets is my guess, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, like where you're seeing that, you're like, you're seeing sign, you're seeing bucks. Okay, well, you've got the idea of where they're at. And is this a rifle? Is this a later rifle hunt? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I should have mentioned that. Yes, it is rifle and uh, it is a mid-October hunt. Um, yep. The 7th through the uh, 18th there. Yep. So we got about 12 days. Okay. Yeah. And that, and that's honestly like the hardest time to find deer too. So low density area, hard time to find deer, difficult (laughs) hunt. What I would probably do Mm -hmm. at that time of year, you know, earlier in the season when I'm scouting, I'd probably hang back glass, the glass straight up from the, in the mornings and like, okay, where are the deer at? Watch where they go. And then, and then figure Mm -hmm. out and make a play later in the season. I'm going to be like, concentrating on smaller areas and more time in those areas. Like, okay, this is a zone where the bucks like, I'm probably going to be up top right? and I'm going to be like glassing really tight because they just aren't, I mean, they aren't going to be moving around. And what you might find too is like, Hey, there's a draw here that has like, I don't know, one, whatever kind of tree, like a short stubby Aspen tree, a short service. A little bit of mahogany. Yeah. A little bit of mahogany, that kind of stuff, like up high those pockets like i if i can get across from it i'm just i'll sit there for a day and just pick that apart i've killed many deer in october just like out of one pocket and you kind of hunt slower and you hunt higher i I would hunt that top third of the mountain and i would i would really pick it apart especially if you know there's deer there Uh, that that kind of helps like hey i I figured out where there because like there's going to be mountains that don't have deer and there's going to be mountains that do there's a, there's a place right. that I hunt, and right? Right next to one another. Yeah, right next to. I mean, there's right a place we were hunting and we saw 25 bucks in one canyon and zero deer on other great places. Like there's only bucks in one particular part and there's not very many deer. So you're really, right. you're like, okay, well, now we know where the deer like to be. This is where they like to be. They're going to be here and we're going to really pick this apart. And I mean, we've, we've killed some really good deer over the years doing that. For me, I think it's like you want to be closer, you want to be higher, you want to be kind of in their zone and you want to be picking that apart. Right. And especially too, because they're moving way less. So you want to be first light, you want to be having the best view of something. You want the best angle on it. You want the best lighting on it. You want to be able to quickly cover it because when you're further away and you're looking back, you know, the sun gets in your eyes. You you only have so much time. You're looking over a lot more country. It's better to probably look over something smaller and faster in the first thing in the morning where you can like really cover it. And that's the way that I would suggest doing it that time of year. Gotcha. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of a plan. I'm even considering just doing it backpack style with a base camp down below. Cause it's, it's a very serious hike to get up there and it burns an hour, hour and a half to do it. Um, yep. So I'm thinking of just uh, getting up kind of close and then get into that area where I've found them. I've found the sign. I found their beds. And just like you said, be, be closer because otherwise I'm 1500 yards away and got to make a plan at that point. Yeah. And there's two ways that like, I like to do like I'll even, you know, you can set up a, a spike camp or even just carry your camp on your back and then just kind of hunt the whole mountain wherever you stop sleep and just do a light setup. You know, that time of year, generally that yeah. country isn't too rough. Like it's fairly dry, not super cold. Like you can get away with some pretty light gear and stay pretty mobile that way. And you do like a two day, three day little thing and come back to your base camp and, and reassess. Exactly. And I think that that's a really that, effective that, that's way to hunt been that. My plan, yeah. 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 I think I think that that's I, a good I gotta plan. love how a, a lot of your information has been affirmation of what I've either thought or tried. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's exactly what the guy said. Or right. I've made a big boo boo <laughs> and done it completely wrong. But man, the knowledge we're getting from you is just uh, you know, it it it, there's no value to it. it. It is so valuable that you can't put a price tag on it. Well, I appreciate that, man. Thanks. That means a lot to me. Well, best of luck. And hopefully uh, mid-October, I get a, uh, a picture of a good buck. Yeah. How, how do we, uh, how do we get that to you? Yeah. I, if you got social media, you can always send it at Remy Warren on Instagram. If you don't, you can always email it to our email yeah. hunt at Remy Yeah. I actually, 
actually sent you a shot of a bull that I got last year. He was beautiful. 342 is what the score came out. And yeah, a lot of that just had to do again with the podcast that you had about where bulls are at post rut, deep, dark canyons. There he was. Awesome. Yeah. I remember that picture actually. That was a great bull. All right, man. Very cool. Hey, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Yep. I'm uh, hope glad you're feeling better and can't wait to hear about your sheep hunt. Yeah, thanks, man. Best of luck to you. Have a good one. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. All right, we're going to go to our next caller here. Ooh. Okay, this just happened. This happens quite often. People end up dropping. And you know, I always take a certain caller number the way they come in the queue, but I answer it last. Our last caller, our winner, dropped off. So we're going <laughs> to... I'm going to select a new number and that'll be our winner. But we're going to get to some more questions here. Hey, welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking to? Hey, this is uh, Dave from near St. Louis. How you doing? Yeah, pretty good. How's it going, Dave? Good. Um, I also came back from the mountains with some sort of bug. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so sounds like I'm not the only one. Yeah. Um, so I was out in Colorado helping my buddy with a unit 76 tag, which is like 17 points. Um, and we were about 12,000 feet and we saw a lot of critters, um, bull and cow moose, uh, does and bucks in terms of mule deer, but only cow elk. Um, So if get a chance to go back out, um, do we go back to the same areas? Um, cause had a family emergency and ended up having to take early plane tickets um, places, but hoping to go back later on this month and, um, kind of more in the high rut, you know, kind of end of September timeframe. So didn't know what your thoughts were in terms of try the same area or completely different spot. What were, and this was just like the first week in September. Yeah. We got into the field on the second. Okay. Yeah. So went into one area on the second, spend a few days in there, or a couple of days in there, um, and then went to uh, a completely different spot. Like we were headed out from camp a few different miles each direction in the morning, afternoon, and then actually packed up, went back to the truck, drove to a completely different spot, and then didn't see any out there, just deer. So, and then we got called out um, to have to come home. So, Yeah, I mean, I I would focus on the places where you saw cows later in the season. Uh, Right now, like, I wouldn't expect the bulls probably to be with the cows. If if you saw a lot of cows, I mean, yeah, they can be. But in those elevations... But at high elevation. At high elevation, those bulls are probably, you know, like, the bigger bulls are probably, like, off in a pocket, still maybe separated or cruising around a bit. You know, there there should be... I guess it kind of depends on the makeup of the herd of cows that you're seeing. If it was like a cow and a couple calves and you kept seeing like a single cow and a couple calves, I mean, you know, but if it was like a herd of actual cows, that's a little bit different without any bulls with it. Cows with a few calves here and there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, like that's a good place to start. You know, if you're like, hey, where do we even start? That's a good place to start because that's that's elk bait right there. Like there's there's going to be bulls in there. If there's no bulls there by like two weeks from now, then there's definitely something wrong and you should go find somewhere else or they're all, they're all gone, right? But there's going to be bulls with cows right. in a couple weeks. So I would definitely, you know, focus on where those cows were. And, you know, I would also say like, you know, you can continue to move around and, and, and see what you find other places. But I would definitely, when you go back, focus on where those those groups of cows were at because I think that the bulls will start filtering okay. in there. Yeah, because we had these high expectations of that unit that we were like going to go in and there were going to be bulls everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> we got in there and we're like, where are they? <laughs> yeah, and I, I think honestly- You know, a lot just, of tough hiking, like one of the guys mentioned with the elevation gain and loss and all that weight on your yeah. back. And it's like, man, this is rough. <laughs> Yeah, and it, I, I've experienced that. And there's times too where you go, like those bulls are in there. They just aren't where you were. You know what I mean? And it was very, uh, obviously to you guys, very yeah. clear, like, hey, we're seeing animals. We just aren't seeing the bulls. They just aren't where we're at. So they're in a different part of the area or a different part of the mountain that we aren't accessing yet. You know, and, and if you go back right. and you're like, hey, we see these groups, like, we're still finding cows and we're just not finding the good bulls or whatever, then I would just go to a different part of the unit personally. Okay. 
And then later on in the month, they should be doing a lot more calling than coming because we didn't even hear one. Yeah. um, Even in night or anything. So, yeah. I mean, especially in a limited entry area, like when they start to fire off, it's just going to be like because they just don't get that hunting pressure. There's a reason that you try to drive tags for 12, 15, 20 years, right? Because the hunting's that much better for the most part because they just have like a lot less pressure. And, and they just, it's just, I think like a late year for them. They had a, a really hard winter, you know? So it's, it's probably right. a, a factor of that. Like, I think that they're going to, in those kind of areas are going to be rutting a little bit later personally, you know, the, the, a cow needs a certain body condition to be ready to go into estrus. And if they had a hard winter, it takes a little bit longer for that body condition. So I think that the rut will probably be just a little bit delayed personally. That's my personal guess this year. In, in some areas. Okay. So I think that you guys are still on track. I would just kind of, you know, check back and, and hopefully, and, you know, and, and I would say by the 19th, 20th, like they should be just going crazy. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. And you say about the hard winter, there was still snow on some of those mountains. <laughs> we yeah. couldn't believe it. Right. Yeah. Like, and, it's and, September you know, and there's still snow. And honestly too, I mean, it wouldn't be bad to check low too. Uh, if there's some lower elevation type country, because sometimes like those bulls could okay. be in that country. They're going to be where the cows are. It could be a right. thing where they just didn't even go up as high as they normally do because of the delay uh, winter. So they're just kind of hanging out and they're like, hey, all the cows are concentrated here. Now this is where we're going to be. Uh, I wouldn't be scared to check out some kind of different type of country in there as well. Okay, cool. And hey, just to give you uh, some cool my very first elk tag, which was my number seven elk tag. And I found it before the the guide did because I used your glassing methods <laughs> and awesome. I found my bull um, before he ever saw it. So yeah, just some kudos to you and all the, the helpful tips that you give to a adult onset hunter like me. So thank you. That's awesome. Well, right on. Love to hear that. Well, best of luck to you guys if you get to go back out and uh, hopefully uh, keep me posted. Will do. Thanks. Yep. Have a good one. All right. Let's go to another caller here. Hey, welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Who am I hey, talking Remy, to? This is Connor from uh, Southern California. Connor, how's it going, man? Good. How are you? Yeah, good. Hey, uh, first of all, thank you so much for uh, just the podcast for all you do. Obviously, being in Southern California, there's not a lot of uh, hunters that, that I uh, grew up with, so... I appreciate all the knowledge that you give to us. Yeah. Um, Before you get into your question, you are the lucky winner of the Montana knife, the uh, stone goat knife. So you can thank caller number seven who dropped out because he put you in the, in the hot seat here. Somebody must've lost service and never called back. So (laughs) uh, congratulations. You're the winner. And then, uh, okay. Now you can ask your question, you know, with that knowledge. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, hopefully, you know, I get a bowl and I get to use it, <laughs> but, uh, so I'm heading up to Utah. Yep. Uh, I'm heading up to, a uh, an area that, uh, elevation ranges from like 7,000 feet where it like kind of flattens out to some like farmland up to about 10,000, maybe a little bit more. It's uh, kind of high, high basin country. Yep. Um, and so my question revolves around like, where should I be, uh, focusing my energy you know, currently it sounds like the bulls are going to kind of be up higher away from the cows right now, based off of that last caller. Um, the, the unit kind of breaks down where there's like some high basins in that like 10,000 to about maybe 9,200 foot range. And then it's pretty steep, uh, until about like, I don't know, 8,500 to, to 8,000. And then it kind of goes steep again. So, yep. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm you know, not quite sure stay top or down. Yeah, you know, I think like personally, I'd probably check out those higher basins right now. You know, we're, we're getting into like, I've been in an area just like that this time of year and you can find them everywhere from the valley floor to the top of the mountain, right? It depends on the year. Some years they're going yeah. crazy last week and some years they'll be going crazy next week or two weeks from now. So it just depends. But I, I think personally, I would probably target that top third of the, range, whatever that, you know, top third elevation is. And I kind of look in those like pockets where, Hey, it's got timber, it's got glassable country. You're probably going to find like 
what I'd be targeting is essentially lone bulls. That's just because they're the easiest bulls to kill. And then if I if I heard crazy activity, saw a lot of other elk, because from up there too, you can glass down a lot easier too. You can cover country that way. So you're going to glass everywhere, but you're also, you know, I, I would focus on that first. And then if that didn't pan out, then I would just kind of readjust, like I said to those other guys, like they were in the field, they experienced that at that particular unit. What they're doing there doesn't mean a two units over could be a completely different story, right? Like it's it's very area and, sure. and unit based and regional based. So you know, in, in the Nevada desert right now, they could they're just like bugling and going crazy. But in you know high alpine area in Montana, it could be quiet. So you know what I would do is is kind of test the waters in different places. And I think that I'd probably target that top third of the mountain, pick the spot. If it's a general area, I'd pick a spot that's kind of hard to get into. And then I would kind of slowly hunt backwards from there. You know, like the thing about elk hunting, right? Is like, you can go pack into an area and be so far away from the road and somebody's going to kill one, like at the bottom of the mountain, 300 yards off the road too. Like, it's just going to happen. Like their bulls are where they are because they're moving and it's the rut. But primarily, I think I would t- target that top third of the mountain in those like kind of pockets and basins that are in that elevation range. Okay. I have one more question if you if you got a minute. Yeah, go for um, it. And it's just about decoys. Um, I know you talked about that antelope one, but I have a Montana elk decoy. I think that's the brand, whatever. Yep. Um, how do you go about using that like as a solo hunter? I've, I've got just myself. I got two buddies that hunt with me. They're not here this time but like neither of them call. So it's always just me doing the stuff. Um, do you find that it's useful if you're solo hunting or not useful? And if so, like, how do you try to set that up? Yeah, I mean, I've used them a lot over the years. I, I think I used them a lot more in the past, maybe just because I got sick of carrying it, to be honest. But, you know, I think for me, the the way that I used it the most was I, I kind of like, I think they actually have clips now, but I had just like punched a hole in the head and the butt and had like a string where I could hang it because the pain was like trying to get it staked, right? When, but what the way that I would do it is essentially put it in a visible place behind me. So if the elk came in and I had to stop calling, it would like be a visual aid to kind of draw them past my location or, you know, distract them from where uh. I'm at. And the hanging thing, if you're in timbered country, is a lot faster to just be able to set it up, right? Like you could throw and go kind of thing. You know, I, I've used it yeah. a lot also too in there's situations where you're like, you're in those basins and it's more open country and you're calling from timber and you set it up in front of the timber patch where an elk like hears a bull bugling and he goes, oh, there's a cow. And then you're set up in that position where, you know, you can see the bull. I mean, there's a lot of times where you're calling to elk and it's like, hey, I'm calling to this elk that's across the basin. There's nothing between me and that elk. And I'm in this patch of, the only patch of cover and he, I'm, I can't go to him. He has to come to me, but why would he come to me when he's looking and doesn't see any elk, right? So I'll use that as like a visual sure. aid to be, for him to say, oh, there's an elk. And that works really good with bulls that are by themselves ah. that are like kind of held up in, in open country. I've had a lot of success with that in those kind of scenarios too. In that case, like I'll, may have the stakes and stake it out in front of the tree or whatever too. So th- those are kind of the ways that I've used yeah. them and had success, you know, so that's just something to think about. Sure. Awesome. Well, Hey, thank you so much. Um, you know, I, I, I appreciate the podcast. I appreciate that you did this live call in. Um, it, it makes it awesome. Thanks so much. Well, best of luck awesome, and, and well, keep me posted on your Utah hunt. All righty. Thanks man. God bless. Yeah. Have a good one. Hey, welcome to the Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking to? Hey, Remy, this is Keith from Michigan. Hey, Keith, how's it going, man? It's going real good. We're uh, making our first trip, my first elk trip uh, this year. We're going out to Colorado. And um, I had a question about storing your food. I don't really know what to do, like about bear and stuff. Yep. And uh, I was wondering how you store your food. Yeah, so are, are you talking like you're backpacking in and what to do with your food when you're sleeping, when you're hunting or kind of, yes, all of sir. yeah. So, okay. A couple of things, nice thing about Colorado, there's no grizzly bears. So it's a little bit different, right? You know, for the most part, like, honestly, I just have my food with me in my tent. I just keep it in my vestibule when I'm sleeping. I feel like I could probably defend it better than any other method. 
It depends on where you're at too. If, now this is, I'm, I'm saying this, like if there's no like legal, I don't think there's any in Colorado, but I know in places in California and stuff, there's certain places in Wyoming, whatever. There's certain ways you have to store your food, right? You can always hang it from a tree. And I just do that by throwing rope over a limb and hoisting it up into a tree. With black bears, you want it a little further out. Uh, grizzly bears doesn't really matter. They can't really climb. So you can put it closer to the tree. Um, but uh, that's one way to do it. Now, if I'm leaving my, I often, like the way that I hunt, I generally don't leave my camp anywhere. So I kind of always have my camp on my back and then go from there. You know, mm, okay. there, there's very few places that I hunt where I'm afraid of black bears getting into my stuff. I mean, outside of Alaska, most of the time, like I have my food on me and then it's with me. So I'm not too worried about that. If it's an area where there's like high bear densities and you're seeing a lot of black bears and they're being pesky, then you'll probably want to throw it up in a tree and just, you know, I'll, I'll tie a rock to an end of a, a long piece of paracord, throw it over a limb and then hoist it up into, in a dry bag. And then I always keep my food in a dry bag anyways. I feel like uh, uh, clearly bears can smell it, but I feel like it, it kind of dampens the whatever and it makes it easier to hoist and keep it all in one place. You know, that, that tends to be the best. That's what I do, you know? And, and I mean, I was just in Alaska for I don't know, 10, 10 days or whatever. There was grizzly bears there. There was black bears. You know, we're camped, but there, you can't do anything with your food. So you got to keep it with you. It's either in our backpacks, hiking around. And that's just if you're, that's the style of hunting you're doing. You know, you're changing your camp every night. If you're going to leave a base camp, then yeah, you definitely want to protect your food. If it's like a off a road system and you've got like a, a permanent camp, you definitely want to keep it either in your vehicle or in like a Yeti cooler that's locked up or something like that. I would say the primary times that, things get hit would be like a base camp near roads where they're more habituated to humans or like in a scenario where you're leaving your camp every day and there's a lot of bears around, then I'd probably just put it up in a tree, to be honest. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then uh, real quick, um, do you, have you, I hate thinking this way, but uh, you know, we have this Yeti cooler. It's the, it's the biggest one they sell. I don't, I don't remember what it was called, but uh, it's like 1500 bucks or whatever. And yeah. we got to leave it at the truck. Um, have you had any issues with, um, those types of things getting stolen? Uh, personally haven't. I know people that have generally, those are so heavy. <laughs> it's kind of a pain in the ass for some I know steel. it's a hundred pounds <laughs> right. without anything in it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, I, I like lock my stuff up, uh, you know, so that's just, I mean, I don't know if it, like, if you got a topper or something like that, it's always nice, uh, you know, like to be able to chain it to the bed. Yep. That's a good way to do it. Like they've got those locks and stuff. I mean, I've got one of those that I just kind of lock it there. And Hey, if somebody goes through that, like, it's not, what are you going to do either way? Right. (laughs) Like you can't stop bad people from doing bad things sometimes. You know, I've got a buddy though, that like, this is a smart idea. And and he's, he had people like messing with his stuff. He was in an area where there's just like a lot of people. And uh, he would just hide two trail cameras facing his vehicle that you just didn't notice, you know? And then he would leave for the week and he had uh-huh. somebody break in and steal something and he got plenty of pictures of their license plate and everything and they caught him and got his stuff back. So that's a good idea. Like, <laughs> it's not a bad idea, <laughs> a you idea. know? Like if it's in an area where you're kind of thinking like, there's a lot of traffic here, there's a lot of whatever, you don't really know the area. I mean, I have one in my truck and I, I it's every once in a while, I'll actually do that. Just be like, yeah, I'm kind of sketched out in this zone here. <laughs> you know, you hear reports of stuff getting <laughs> stolen. So uh, it's, a, it's a good idea because I, I know that that works as well. Okay, cool. Yeah, like I said, I hate thinking about that, but, you know, I <laughs> got a lot of money invested. Oh, in for sure. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know, like, when he caught the guys, he was pretty, he was pretty pumped on his trail camera thing. So <laughs> he was like, he got all his stuff back. They, they <laughs> caught the guys. It was pretty easy to catch him, too. It was like... Oh, here's a picture of your face and your license plate. You know, I mean, he brought it into the local, like, you know, local whatever police sheriff thing. And they, yeah. I mean, they knew the guy, right? They're like, oh yeah, we know who he is. We'll go pick him up. You know, like, we'll go get your stuff. And it was all there. You know, he got everything back. So uh, that, that's a good way to do it, I guess. That's funny. Yeah, that's a good win. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Uh, Thank you so much, Remy, man. And uh, I hope you have a great season. Be safe out there. And uh, yeah, hopefully uh, we get to send you some pictures of uh, Bull. Yeah, awesome, man. Well, that'd be sweet. Looking forward to it. Well, best of luck to you guys and, and enjoy your hunt. Awesome, man. We'll talk to you. All right. Catch you later.
Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that Live Wild Live. I really like doing these ones, especially during the season. It's fun to hear the hunting stories and, and get to share that with everybody that called in. If you if I didn't get to your call, hopefully next time we'll we'll get to answer some more calls and and maybe you'll get through and we'll we'll get to chat hunting. Until next week, uh, I want to mention too, if you guys liked that stone goat knife from Montana Knife Company. They've got all these different knives, but the best way to get a knife like this is through their drops. So make sure you're signed up for their email list. And then just a little secret tip. If you're not on my email list, well, we've got both email and SMS. The way that I use those is I pretty much just use them for giveaways. Every month I do some kind of giveaway. You know, I'm not saying exactly what's coming up, but if you really like that knife, you want to make sure that you're signed up for that today, okay? Because there's not a lot of time. There, you might see something like this in the future, all right? That's just all the, that's all the hints that I'm going to give you. But I, I think that that's one of the cool things about the way Montana Knife does things is they make these things. There's guys hand sharpening them. I've been in the, off, like the shop in Montana and it's awesome to see these knives be made. And then when they have enough to sell, they release them and they sell out really fast. So yeah, this is one of my favorite knives. It's got, you know, that skinning blade. It's lightweight. It's super easy to sharpen. It stays sharp. Like it's just one of my favorite knives. Um, so make sure that you're available for those drops if this is a, something that you're looking for. Also make sure that you're signed up for my email list. You just find it at remywarren.com. It'll be at the bottom there and it should pop up when you first come on. If you signed up, you're in, you're automatically, everybody that's on my email list is automatically entered for any giveaway that I do or any special promotion or other thing that we have, you're automatically into that stuff. So keep an eye out for that. And then also we have the new through the text message thing or whatever. I probably won't be sending anybody any text messages, but just another way to uh, be able to contact someone if they win something. So keep an eye out for that. I appreciate you guys all for listening, for supporting the podcast. Thank you guys for such great questions and best of luck this hunting season. Until next week, live wild. Catch you guys later.